they've just come through World War One. Hemingway himself is, is dealing with that trauma. Reading it in 2020 really gave me a sort of hope for the future. You know, that the lost generation went through this huge event and they are now overcoming adversity and surviving afterwards. And I found it quite a hopeful thing to read. From Bookworms in the Wild and from Anchor, I'm Howard Alterescu, and this is my podcast where I ask people I find interesting to tell me what they're reading. Before I welcome my guest today, let me mention what I've been reading. I started off the year with Interior Chinatown by Charles Yu, winner of the 2020 National Book Award for Fiction. This is a satire about Hollywood's treatment of Asian Americans. Great book, although both troubling and thought-provoking. I then read Twilight Democracy, The Seductive Lure of Authoritarianism by Anne Applebaum. This book is as timely and frightening as you might imagine. After the insurrection at the U.S. Capitol building on January 6, Anne Applebaum was on all of the TV talk shows. I also read Rodham by Curtis Sidenfeld, Not historical fiction, but fiction based on historical figures, literary fiction, an alternative universe, sliding doors, if you will. Although Hillary and Bill are the novel's protagonists, plus a Trump cameo, this was a welcome break from the recent and ongoing trauma. I'm currently reading The Custom of the Country, a 1913 classic tragicomedy of manners by Edith Wharton. Beautifully written characters and depictions of New York and Paris. My first exposure to Wharton and glad to be reading this as part of a New York Times book club, although I've yet to find a character I like. My nonfiction selection, Twilight of Democracy, served its purpose by educating me, although it also elevated my anxiety. My fiction selections also served their purpose by diverting my attention from the news and from my screens. Very thankful for that. Thankful as well for our guest today, budding novelist, Charlotte Cross. About a month ago, Charlotte tweeted that she had just finished her first ever first-ish draft of a full-length novel and sent it off to a friend to read it. I'm not a writer, but I've taken an interest in the writing process and have recently read writing memoirs by Stephen King and Robert Carroll. One of my podcast episodes in 2019 was a discussion of The Art of Time in Fiction by Joan Silber. And I've enjoyed discussions about the writing process with a number of authors on the podcast. As an avid reader, I'm very appreciative of an author, fiction or nonfiction, who can tell a good story. After reading her tweet, I messaged Charlotte to ask whether she would be interested in discussing her book and her writing process on the podcast. And here we are. Charlotte, I'm so pleased to have you on the podcast. Welcome. Thank you very much for inviting me, Howard. It's great to be talking to you today. You're, you're very welcome. Tell me a bit about yourself, where you're from and what you do when you're not writing, and then we'll get into the writing part. Sure. Well, I live in Oxford here in England in the UK. 
um, a city with a very long literary tradition and more bookshops than you could possibly ever visit, which is just a wonderful place to live as an avid reader like yourself and a, and a budding writer. Um, I'm an editor at a major scientific publisher. I work on engineering books and now engineering journals. But I'm not an engineer. I'm not even a scientist. My background is in, in English language and literature, and I have a master's degree in publishing, which turns out to be absolutely fantastic for someone who one day wants to write books, um, because I have so many friends who are all in the publishing industry, copy editors and people who have you know, creative writing degrees and who are very, very keen to read uh, the, the things that I try to write, which is wonderful. So it's a great environment you're in, both Oxford and with uh, your circle of friends. You mentioned to me uh, when we exchanged emails that you recently read three particular books, The Tenant of Wildfell Hall, A Movable Feast, and Bird by Bird. Now, Bird by Bird is a classic writing book, uh, and my friend Uli Boyda-Cohen mentioned on our podcast discussion last year the importance of Bird by Bird. Talk a little bit about these books, how you chose them, and whether they relate to each other. So, um... They, these are these are three of the books that have really got me through the challenging times that we've had in uh, in the last year. Hemingway's A Movable Feast, uh, which is about his time in Paris in the 1920s. Although we won't and maybe won't talk about it too much because I know a previous guest of yours um, said that Hemingway was somewhat over discussed, which I think is, is true. <laughs> right. Um, I I found it so helpful to me and in thinking about and thinking about writing um and Hemingway's best tip which is stopping for the day when you know what's going to happen next and you're excited to write it and you don't want to stop is absolutely fantastic and probably the best the best tip for an aspiring author I've ever read anywhere but reading reading that book they've just come through world war one Hemingway himself is is dealing with that trauma Reading it in 2020 really gave me a sort of hope for the future. You know, the, the lost generation went through this huge event and they are now overcoming adversity and surviving afterwards. And I found it quite a hopeful thing to read. Um, but my my favorite, favorite story from that book is uh, Hemingway writing about his wife coming to meet him with a suitcase full of um, lots of his drafts, lots of his writing, and losing it on a train, and Hemingway then having to start from scratch uh, with, with none of his notes or drafts or anything. And, and that also felt like quite a metaphor for, for hope for the, for the writer who has just had to throw out 40,000 words of their first draft because it's not working, which was me early last year. So that was a really, a really fascinating read in, on a number of levels. I love that bit that you mentioned about when you need to stop writing. So many of the authors I've spoken with and, and I've read about talk about the development of the characters and not knowing what they're going to do next and discovering, uh, by, by continuing writing, discovering what, they, what their uh, characters are going to do. Is that the experience you've had so far with your first draft? Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I did start out trying to follow the advice that says, okay, and everything very firmly, you know, make sure you have a character sketch, know exactly who they are. But I found that I just, I, I couldn't do it. It did not work at all. I got to know them more as I wrote and learned who they were and what they wanted. And that very much, yeah, came out as part of the writing process. 
And part of the reason why I had to get rid of so much at, at the beginning was because I tried to do this very rigid, um, take this very rigid approach, and it just didn't have that flow. And it is something that Anne Lamott talks about in Bird by Bird, that you will get to know your characters. They will eventually show themselves to you, and you can't make them do something they don't want to do. That's wonderful. That's really great. So Bird by Bird was uh, very helpful to you, I gather. Oh, absolutely. I, I borrowed it from a friend, actually, a publishing friend, and I loved it so much, I went out and bought my own copy, which is now full of underlinings and post-it notes and turned down pages. She's like a wise best friend who holds your hand and is very reassuring, but occasionally sort of slaps you in the face when you need it, which is wonderful um, in, a, in, a, in a writing writing guide, I think. Um, the title itself is, is, is advice, advice her father gave to her brother when he was panicking about writing a school report on bird life that he'd left to the last minute. And I took, up, took it up as my sort of writing mantra. Her father said to her brother, just take it bird by bird, son, bird by bird. So I just, whenever I was starting to feel a bit overwhelmed by what I was trying to do, you know, what right do I have to be, to be trying to write a novel? I should be doing something else. I should be, you know, doing the dishes or whatever. Just, just taking back to that and saying, no, trust yourself. Take it bird by bird, uh, bird by bird. That's a wonderful passage from the book. And the tenant of Wildfell Hall, how does that fit into this? So this is a slightly slightly different. This is, this is a novel by, uh, by Anne Bronte, who's the, the lesser-known Bronte sister after Charlotte and Emily. Um, it's essentially a love story, but also a takedown of unequal marriage in the 19th century. And it was sort of my escape in the early pandemic when, you know, I, I couldn't really write very much or very well. I wasn't feeling very creative because it was such a stressful time. And I would read that book and I would feel sort of absorbed and in it very very kind of soothed but then I went back to it later uh, when I was starting writing again and I was beginning to pick up the pace because the language is so beautiful and also so it's a contemporary 19th century novel my novel is set in the 19th century and getting into the language inhabiting that time period it was like the easiest research you could possibly do it was just it was just so helpful in a different way just feeling completely immersed and being able to then put that book down and start writing was just a huge help because I was almost already in the in the flow of it. And if, when writing a historical novel, I think that's, that's very important because if you've got a modern-sounding voice, that's going to show up and then that's more work and more editing. So that's where, that's where what The Tenant of Wildfell Hall really fits into my, into my reading here. Well, so that's a great fit. Uh, in, your, in one of your emails, you said that uh, the work on your novel has been informed by your lifetime of book adoration and all of your reading over the years. Uh, Stephen King noted in his writing memoir that voluminous reading is a critical element of good writing. He said, if you don't have time to read, you don't have time or tools to write. And um, I I think what you've said about uh, this novel, uh, The Tenant of Wildfell Hall, is terrific. It puts you you in the the time and uh, perhaps in the mood to do what you needed to do in writing the draft of your novel. That sounds like a wonderful thing to do. It also served, as I said earlier, the the purpose of fiction uh, to divert you from preoccupations that you'd rather not be preoccupied with at a given point in time. So I'm I'm also very interested in the theme of your novel, which I understand to be giving voices to characters that have been left in the background of famous and important works. 
Talk about the book you're writing and examples of where this approach has been used. So my my work in progress is a novel whose whose main characters are the women who would become the brides of Dracula. And the term brides is not used in the original novel. It's sisters or weird sisters is what Bram Stoker calls them. But the term brides became used in later adaptations and has sort of stuck. So in modern times, that's how we tend to know them. And I always, I always wondered about them when I was reading Dracula. And then one day I was in a, one of Oxford's famous bookshops and I picked up a book by uh, Professor John Sutherland called Who is Dracula's Father and Other Puzzles in Bram Stoker's Gothic Masterpiece. And one of those puzzles uh, is where did Dracula's English-speaking hiring come from? And I went back to the book, and, and in Dracula, when the brides meet Jonathan Harker, the protagonist, they are speaking English. And something about that sparked my imagination. And until recently, these women, they're mostly highly sexualized, they're mostly one-dimensional, and I wanted to flesh them out and explore why they might have come to be there. And I'm not the only person, certainly, to want to look at that. Um, there's been several novels in, in recent years, which look at look at these women, um, especially a, a young adult novel, which is very much on my uh, to-read pile. The name of the YA novel Charlotte referred to is The Undead Girls by Kieran Millwood Hargrave. It's a, it's a yeah, young adult novel and has put them in the medieval time period, which is a, a perfectly reasonable um, reasonable time period to, to do that because you know, the original uh, Dracula is considered to be modeled on Vlad the Impaler, who's a medieval ruler. But I wanted to put them in the 19th century context of the novel Dracula. But yes, in terms of giving giving voices to characters who haven't really been been given that chance to speak, I mean, there is a very, very long history of that. And it's becoming more common now. There's certainly been quite a few in the last 10 years. And the tendency seems very much to be that characters who are in some way marginalized in the original narrative are given this treatment. So, um, for example, I mentioned to you the novelist Pat Barker wrote uh, quite recently a book called The Silence of the Girls about women in the Trojan War. And that actually has elements of a really early example of this, um, the Greek tragedy by Euripides, the Trojan women, which I will not pretend to have read, but... um, Ancient myth is a great source of this revoicing. We have um, a recent one by Madeline Miller about Circe from the Odyssey. She also wrote The Song of Achilles, which takes um, Patroclus, who's a lover of Achilles, as the central character. But then the most famous, the most famous example, and you can't talk about this without mentioning it, is Jean Reese and Wild Sargasso Sea from uh, 1966, I think. Wild Sargasso Sea by Jean Rhys was actually published in 1966. And that's told from the point of view of Bertha Mason, who we know as Mrs. Rochester, the mad wife in the attic in Charlotte Bronte's Jane Eyre. So she also has um, a slightly ambiguous ethnicity, so there's an intersection of marginalization there as well. But we could also think about Clark, um, Longbourn by Joe Baker, that looked at Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice from the perspective of the servants would be an example of that. And you did ask me about the men who have been the subject of these almost almost retellings, but not quite. Um, and I can think of one one major one, which uh, is, is recent, called uh, March by uh, the fantastic Geraldine Brooks, which is about um, 
the father of the girls in Louisa May Alcott's Little Women, who was away in the Civil War, and his experiences there, which is based on Louisa's own father, and he was quite a character. So, um, so that's a real story test. Um, but I did think that because so much of literature is by men and for men and featuring men, maybe that's why it tends to be the female characters who are now being brought forward and given the spotlight themselves. That's terrific. And, and thank you for the explanation. Is there a name for this genre, marginalized character studies or, or, or something more glamorous than that? I don't know that there is. Um, we might call it, I've, I've seen it called a literary retelling, but I don't know that that necessarily fits. Um, so I don't know that there is one. There should be one to, to be able to describe it properly. Yeah. Well, it sounds like um, there's, there, there may, must be so much in the literature where you can identify uh, characters. And, and I, I appreciate what you've said about women as opposed to male uh, characters, where you can identify characters who, uh, whose stories are lurk in the background, whose stories um, are not told by the original novel and the literary retelling of these marginalized characters can be quite the thing. So good luck. Do you have, do you have a working title that you'd like to share? Um, at the moment, it's just called A Tale of the Brides of Dracula. I haven't, I haven't finalized it yet. Uh, a friend of mine who does work in, um, in fiction publishing advised me not to get a title that I was too attached to. <laughs> if I ever tried to get it published, the editor would change it. She says she always changes the title of a book, so she's not do that yet. So I, I've decided not to. All right. Well, it's, it sounds like it's descriptive, A Tale of the... Uh, the Brides of Dracula. <laughs> so when, when you do read, what is your reading style? Do you read, well, you said you underline, so do you read physical books exclusively? Um, well, for the most part at the moment, yes, but it does depend on circumstances. Um, I found uh, an e-reader to be really useful when traveling in the days when we used to travel. Right. Um, but now that I'm home, it's, it's mostly physical books. And, and in addition to the three books you mentioned, I'll say you're currently reading, you were currently reading at the time we, we emailed, other books that um, you're reading now or on your to-read list? Um, I'm actually now reading a book called How to Be a Victorian, which is part of my research um, for, for my work in progress. Because when I started and was trying to do research about the period I found it quite difficult because I, I didn't know where my knowledge gaps were until I until I got it all written down. So now, uh, as part of the editing process, I'm doing more research, going back over it and making sure that there's nothing anachronistic going on um, and making sure it really it does feel that, yes, this is the authentic 19th century. So the, the books I mentioned at the outset uh, were purchased at uh, local bookstores here in upstate New York, The Golden Notebook in Woodstock, New York, and Rough Draft Bar and Books in Kingston. Where do you get your books? Do you, do you wander into local bookstores? You said there are many in Oxford. Uh, yes, there are. So for preference, um, in, when I can, I go to Blackwell's, which is um, uh, quite a famous bookshop in central Oxford. Um, but I recently I've been ordering online and uh, here in the UK there's a wonderful website called Hive which when you order from them they also donate to independent bookshops 
I think that's uh, quite good. But I do use Amazon for my ebooks. Well, this has been great. This your 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 process sounds fascinating. Your book sounds fascinating. Do you have a timetable to get your book done? Oh, I do not have a timetable to get it done, and um, I'm just I decided to kind of try and free myself from that expectation. I mean, it took Bram Stoker seven years to write Dracula. Um, and he had a more than full-time job at the same time. I have a regular full-time job, so I figure if I can get it done in half the time, that would be great. Um, but I'm trying not to put too much pressure on myself. Um, but I finished the first draft in about a year, so maybe by the end of this year, I'll have a second draft. That, that sounds perfect. Sounds perfect. Well, thank you very much. This has been really terrific. I really appreciate you taking the time. I wish you the best. I'll keep up with you on Twitter. And uh, we'll talk another time. Thank you. Thank you so much, Howard. More information about our guest today can be found on our website, www.bookwormsinthewild.com. The website also includes links to the books and other resources we referred to in our discussion. Thanks especially to my podcast team. Dave created the podcast with me and is my producer. Ron is responsible for art direction and design for the podcast, our website, and my bookmark. Melanie has provided overall creative direction, and Ben and Eden provide additional inspiration and support. And of course, Carol is my muse. 21-month-old Jake continues to encourage the podcast, as well as to delight every one of us. Life is grand for Jake, as it should be. The entire Wolfpack is also responsible for introducing me to most of our guests. Thanks also to the great Anchor team, for making it free and easy to create the podcast. And thanks as well to A.J. Falari, who is working on the editing with me. And if you liked our podcast, please subscribe. And in any event, let me have your comments, either directly on the podcast or at bookwormsinthewild at gmail.com. Looking forward to seeing you on the podcast next time. Mm-hmm.